Welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt, slashing your taxes, and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, who met his wife while training for the 400 meters in Seattle and is eating gluten-free whilst lusting after bread, Dave Denniston. And we would like to thank our sponsor, Locum Story. Have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? Whether you are burned out, need a change of pace, or are looking to supplement your income, Locum Tenens might be a solution for you. If you're considering Locum Tenens either full-time or on the side, you probably have a question or two or 20. Fortunately, Locum Story has the answers you need. It is packed with unbiased information and advice from physicians just like you. LocumStory.com has nothing to sell. It's simply a resource for information where you'll find all kinds of super handy tools that let you see Locum's trends for your specialty. Be able to compare it with different Locum's agencies and there's even a quiz to help decide if Locum's is right for you. The Locum Story blog also features content and perspectives from actual Locum's physicians who have firsthand Locum's experience. LocumStory.com is the perfect place to start if you want to learn more about Locum. So everyone, make sure to check out LocumStory.com. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping doctors like you slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Well, as many of you know, I have really become obsessed and interested in my next financial experiment of self-storage. And so we're bringing on some folks here to talk to us about their journey, how they got started, pros and cons, things they've learned along the way. And our next guest has done awesome. By the age of 30, he has built a portfolio of over $150 million in self-storage assets across the country with just within the last four years. Now, he's not only doing self-storage um, type things, he's, he's done it from the ground up, he's bought existing facilities, he's reused big box stores, all kinds of good stuff. And so we're looking forward to learning from him today. Please help me welcome Fernando Angelucci. Welcome, Fernando. Thanks for having me, Dave. Yeah, man. Glad to have you. Welcome to the show. Well, Fernando, it's always good to give a background and where you've come from. What, uh, where are you from originally? Where'd you grow up? Yeah. So, uh, grew up in the West side of, uh, Chicago, West suburbs, if you will. Um, I'm the son of two immigrants from Brazil. Very interesting upbringing because I was kind of fed the American dream, if you will, you know, go to school, get good grades, go to college, get good grades, go for, you know, go work for a fortune 50 company and then retire 40 years later with a pension. Right. And uh, unfortunately, that is not the <laughs> it's not the way the world works anymore or a very, very small percentage of it. Yeah. So when my I guess my path really veered off was when I was 16 years old, I read a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which showed me the importance of uh, not only being a business owner, but all the advantages, not only tax and otherwise that real estate can offer you. So went to my father, I said, Hey, 
don't want to go to school. He said, basically over my dead body. So I, I, I went and, and graduated from University of Illinois with a uh, engineering degree, went on to work for a Fortune 50 company, uh, Dow Chemical, but very quickly decided that was not the way I wanted to uh, live out the rest of my life. So uh, quit within 13 months and started investing in real estate. Interesting. So tell me about growing up with two immigrant parents from Brazil. You know, what was what was it like growing up in their house? Yeah, it was, it was very interesting. We were, you know, very frugal, not a lot of extra things, if you will. Uh, and there was a, a big emphasis on education, you know, to get, get ahead in life. But then also one of the things I had to kind of unlearn or unprogram was this aversion to debt. You know, they would buy everything in cash, you know, cars, cash, house, cash, whatever you can. But the, the use of debt in real estate is one of those things that really allows outsized returns. I mean, just like a lot of your listeners here, I doubt, you know, many of them paid for their entire undergraduate and postgraduate education with cash. And they most likely used debt to finance that. And this is where I like to show the difference between using debt for liabilities, things that don't make you money versus using debt for assets, those that put money in your pocket every month. Uh, so unlearning that was, um, took a couple of years, but once I was able to do that, I realized that by using leverage, you have someone put up basically 80% of the capital needed, but you still get to keep all the tax advantages. You get to keep the majority of the cash flow. Uh, the the amortization, the appreciation, that all goes to you. And so you you hate working for the man at Dow Chemical. You're out in in the real world. Did you know? Did you start in real estate while you had your day job, or did you just jump off and uh, say, you know what, I'll just figure it out and learn how to open up the parachute as I'm jumping out of the plane. <laughs> it's funny that you use that analogy because that's something I, I say all the time, you know, jump out of the plane and build the parachute on the way down. But it was a little bit of both. So once I got bit by the real estate bug, I started voraciously reading and absorbing any material I could on real estate, whether it was all the rich dad books or, you know, um, Robert Kiyosaki had a bunch of lines that he did with, you know, other real estate investors in the, in the field. I went to seminars. I went to, you know, RIA meetings, real estate investor association meetings in my local markets uh, to try to get as much as I can. But what you'll realize, just like, you know, being a doctor, um, 20% of what you learn is what you learn from reading and listening to podcasts. But the other 80% comes from doing right being on the job learning live if you will so i did i did read a lot i did take a lot of seminars and and you know a lot of coaching groups things like that but where i really started to excel was when i finally just decided to pull the plug and start investing in real estate knowing that there would be potentially some failures but as long as i mitigated those failures and i learned from those failures quickly and in the beginning that helped me scale the business. So as soon as I quit Dow Chemical, I started in the residential space, a small single family up to maybe four unit multifamily properties. I was wholesaling those, which mean um, 
I put those properties under contract. I'd sell that contract to another investor at a higher price and I'd make the spread. So very easy way to get started in real estate by not having to risk too much capital, you know, just your earnest money on the deal uh, for outsized returns. The calendar, what, what year was this? This was 2013, 2014. So the, the economy had tanked and, right. and you're, you're part of the Nike swoosh on the way back up, you know, right. the economy recovering. Certainly, I mean, still, I mean, there were questions in 2011, 2012, like, are we going back into another recession, right? right. Like uh, there were concerns with the Eurozone. I mean, as deep as things went down in 2007, 2008, 2009, there was a lot of questions at the time in terms of, gosh, how long is this recovery going to go for? So speak to that. I'm curious to hear about your mentality at the time, and what you were looking at and how you thought about the economy at the time you were investing initially? Yeah. So I think there's always questions and uncertainty, right? Even present day. However, you shouldn't allow that uncertainty to paralyze you. I knew in general, if you look at the last thousand years, you know, typically those that were the landowners did very well, regardless of if there was wars or pandemics, what have you. So I knew regardless of what time I was getting involved in the economy, as long as I played my, you know, my cards right, I, I made sure my leverage was manageable, um, that I had cash flow to account for well and above what my obligations were, debt service and expenses otherwise, that would be fine. So in the beginning, you know, when I was looking at what was going on with the stock market, what was going on with employment, I realized that being an employee was the riskiest thing I could do because I could do my job perfectly, but because of the actions of people that I had no influence over, you know, CEOs, shareholders, et cetera, I could lose my job even if I was performing exceptionally well. And we see this time and time again, you know, companies making ter- leadership in companies making terrible decisions. And then the people that suffer are not the CEOs or the decision makers, it's the employees at the bottom. I knew if I took my fate into my own hands and I was my own boss, that I basically the the buck stopped with me. I was the one responsible for making money. I was the one responsible for losing money. And I thought that that was a much safer position to be in than one where I was basically had my hand out waiting for a check from somebody. Absolutely. And so you start wholesaling for those that aren't familiar with wholesaling. Tell us, tell us about what it, what is that? Yeah. So wholesaling is when you find a property, typically it's off market. So it's not uh, listed by a broker. You're usually directly dealing with the seller and you put the property under contract. So what you do is say, Hey, just for ease of numbers, I'm going to buy your property for a hundred thousand dollars. I'm going to give you a thousand dollars earnest money today. And then in 30 days, we'll meet at the title company and I'll bring the other 99,000 and we'll close on the property, just like a typical transaction. However, during that 30 day time period, I market the property to other investors and I say, hey, here's this great property. It's $120,000. And I get an investor that raises his hand and says, I would like to buy this property off you for 120. I think I can make 60,000 off it or, or so, or I can put it into my rental portfolio, what have you. And then he ends up paying me $20,000 to assign my contract to him, which means that he now gets to step into my shoes as the buyer on that purchase agreement for that fee, which allows him to now go close on that 
opportunity to make the profit that he thinks he can make. So that's an easy way to get started in real estate because as you know, really the only thing at risk for me is that earnest money of a thousand dollars if I'm unable to perform, but the return is outsized. Like I said, in that example, I can make $20,000 off of a thousand invested over a 30, 45 day period of time. Um, so that's a good way to kind of dip your toes in the waters for two reasons. Uh, the second is the ability to get validation on your underwriting. If someone that is more experienced than me is willing to pay more for a property than I have it under contract for, that means that I'm running my numbers appropriately and conservatively enough uh, where I can move that for an additional profit to someone else. Got it. No, that's, that's a great way to understand this. And I think the main benefit I see of uh, wholesaling is it's giving you an immediate cash. Correct. Relatively, right? Or at least pretty quick cash. It's not like you have to wait around for six, seven, eight months to rehab a property or years, you know, to get, get it where it's supposed to be and then to turn around and, and sell it. When did you start mixing in like more buy and hold kind of strategies in your journey? Yes, as soon as I can. So the goal was always to get to the buy and hold point of the investment because that's where you start making mailbox money, right? When you're wholesaling or you're fixing and flipping, you still have a job. It's just that you own that job. If you don't wake up every morning and do those activities, the money stops flowing in. Whereas when you do buy and hold properties, you do the work once up front, you put the team in place and then they run the assets for you and then you just receive monthly checks. So now all of a sudden your money is working for you. You're making money while you sleep. And if you decide that you want to take a few months off, you can do that and still have that, that capital coming in. So within probably 12 to 18 months, I already started saving up a lot of the cash I was making from wholesaling to start buying uh, multifamily homes, uh, typically anywhere between you know, two to four units, eventually started to branch out into larger complexes, you know, 10, 12, 14, 18 unit properties. And that was going really well until I got to a point where I had about 70 properties and the passive income didn't feel so passive anymore. I caught myself spending, you know, 80 plus hours a week and dealing with issues that typically come with tenants, um, you know, having water heaters that fail or HVAC units that fail, especially in colder climates like Chicago or Iowa, you know, when it's 30 degrees, negative 30 degrees outside and your furnace fails, that's, that's a pretty life or death situation that you have to handle. It comes with a lot of stress. So from that point on, I realized that this is not the way I wanted to build my lifestyle business. I started looking at exiting those assets or what I call habitation-based real estate. I didn't want anyone living in my investments anymore. And uh, the reason why is it came down to the three T's. Uh, all my stress, all my problems came from tenants, toilets, and trash. So how do I get rid of those three T's while still being able to make that passive income or that mailbox money? That's well, when I fell. Oh, let, me, sorry. let me interrupt you real quick, just to because we, we went over that period of time so quickly. So sure. you went from having a couple to having 70, I think you said. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How are you 70 able, doors. How were you able to scale to 70 doors? Like and, and how many years did that take you? So that was from 2014. And then I sold the last of my habitation-based real estate in 2018. But mm-hmm. I started selling them off in 2016. So two to four years roughly. 
and it comes from using leverage and OPM, other people's money. Uh, this is something that's actually easily more easily done with your audience than with me. Typically, engineers don't have a lot of money sitting around, but doctors do. Um, so you can start talking to your doctor friends and, and start having them invest alongside you. So basically, what I started doing is is creating what are called syndications. Syndications are filed under the SEC. Typically, we would do them under Regulation D, Rule 506, B, and C, which allowed us to raise money for a common enterprise from limited partners. So I would say I would go buy a million dollar property. I'd go to the bank and the bank would offer me, you know, 750,000 of that as leverage, which means I'd had to come up with the other 250,000. In the beginning, I would fund that myself just out of my cash flows, but very quickly I stripped my capital um, and I was left with kind of, you know, I was, I was asset rich and cash poor, if you will. So the next phase was then to start raising money from friends and family around me. And so I'd file these, these syndications with the SEC, um, which would allow me to legally raise capital from, you know, sophisticated or accredited investors. And they would come up with, you know, of that 250,000, I would put say 50,000 of my own cash instead of the 250. And then the other 200,000 would come from these investors. And and in return, I would give them shares of the company that I set up to own that specific asset. So all of a sudden now, instead of me being able to buy $1 million property with my $250,000 in cash, I'd be able to buy five $1 million properties because now I'm only investing 50,000 of my own cash into each project and then basically running the prop the property or the project for my equity investors. I love it. Now what a great way to first you got experience yourself, right? It wasn't like you just started saying, "Hey, right. can I can I can I have some of your money?" You know, like you you started doing some of this yourself, building up, understanding how it works. And it was within, I mean, a few years, right? I mean, you you were definitely hustling, working hard and uh, built up a portfolio to the point it's like, you know what, I'm, I'm ready to rock. And so in that process, what were you looking at outside of the, the tenant, uh, or whatever the term was you used for where people live, you know, that you started exploring other stuff? What were you looking at um, besides, obviously, the multifamilies of the world? Yeah, exactly. So like I said, it was the, my problems were coming from tenants, toilets, and trash. So how do I eliminate those things? So when I started looking at alternative investments within the real estate world, I fell upon really three options and then I narrowed it down to self-storage. So the first was data centers, you know, these large buildings that are pretty utility intensive. However, you're not storing people, if you will, you're not housing people, you're housing servers, um, a lot of wires and that seemed like a good option, but at the time I wasn't in a financial position to, to run into those types of investments. They required a substantial amount of investment up front. They had a pretty large operating expense ratio, which is the percentage of your income that goes to expenses because of the huge amounts of utilities needed. The second one that I looked at were mobile home parks. So with mobile home parks, you technically don't own the house. You just own the concrete pad that those mobile homes are placed on. However, once I started talking to mobile home operators, I realized that that's an ideal world. In most cases, the park or the park owner, the investor ends up owning some, if not a lot of the 
mobile homes on the sites because those that leave, they don't take the home with them. They just don't have the financial means to do that. So then all of a sudden you're back to being a landlord and you have tenants, toilets, and trash, which I wanted to avoid. The last piece was self-storage. Once I fell on self-storage, it was almost like hearing hallelujah. And, and when you look at the different advantages of running self-storage over say habitation based real estate, it was a clear winner for me. So, you know, aside from it having the highest returns historically over the last 30 years, aside from it having recession resilience, if you look at the last four major recessions that we've gone through, one of the things that I really liked about self-storage was the fact that you had these uh, easier evictions. And I know you can't see me, but I'm using air quotes here when I say the word evictions, because we're technically not doing evictions. Self-storage, as opposed to say multifamily homes, is not run by landlord-tenant law or habitation-based law. It's run by lien law or property law, which means when someone puts their possessions inside of one of my self-storage units, they are automatically giving me a de facto lien against those possessions if they are at a later point to not pay the rent. So instead of me, let's say if I was a, a multifamily operator, when someone doesn't pay, then I have to go through the eviction process. If you live in you know, tougher markets that are very tenant friendly, like you know, all of California, San Francisco specifically, New York City, Chicago, some of these larger metropolitan areas where they make it very difficult for you to remove tenants when they don't pay, you, know, you could be looking at anywhere between six to nine months of loss on that asset between vacancy, repairs, maintenance, uh, paying a realtor to find you a new tenant. With storage, because it's lien-based law, once somebody stops paying, we overlock their unit. So they now have, they have no access to their possessions until they come current. And if they continue to be back due, then we put their, their storage unit up for auction. Uh, which is kind of like, a, it's all digitized now. So it's kind of like an eBay based process. And within 30 to 45 days of that initial due, that delinquency, the tenant has, their possession has been sold. A, the buyer has to broom, uh, broom sweep the unit. And then the new customer, the new tenant is typically waiting for that unit. Uh, so very little downtime, very little turnover costs is one of the, the best parts about self-storage. I love it. No, I, I agree with so much of that. And that's part of my attraction to the space and, and wanting to learn about it. I buy and sell land quite a bit, as, as uh, our listeners know here. And I don't have any of those issues. There's other issues, but uh, the tenants and toilets and termites aren't, aren't one of them. I'm curious to, to know, since you've sold so many assets, did you have did you start in self-storage just with your own money, like you did with real estate initially? Or did you just feel like you had such a great handle on real estate in general that you could hop right into self-storage and start syndications and those things since you already had experience with it? Yeah, no. So, you know, I like to build up before I ask anybody to trust me and put their capital in my hands and stewardship, I need to prove to them I have a track record with that asset type. Now, self-storage may fall under the real estate bucket, but it has its own you know, intricacies that you need to learn as opposed to say residential houses or self-storage or um, multifamily or land. 
So you got to build up that that track record. So in the beginning, you you can raise capital from the people that trust you. You know, they know, like, and trust you, like friends and family. But I preferred to build my own track record. So in the beginning, I used my own capital. Uh, me and my partners, we put it all in the in the deals ourselves. And then after we had four or five under our belt. Uh, that's when we decided to start doing the syndications to point to like, Hey, you can see my track record already. I'm not asking you to trust me. I'm asking you to look at my historical performance, uh, knowing that I'm getting better and better over time. So I didn't start syndicating storage until 2018. I believe it was the first one that I syndicated. And how were you deciding like, because there's all kinds of places you could do sell storage. How are you deciding where and the dollar amount you know you'd be investing in those sorts of things in a given facility sure so i approached all of my real estate companies not as real estate companies but more as marketing companies so i knew that if i did enough marketing that that one deal in a lifetime would come around every six months or so so i had to really broaden my reach an interesting thing about self-storage is that as opposed to say houses or multifamily, there's much less of them in the United States. So there's roughly only about 70,000 self-storage facilities in the entire United States. So instead of trying to sniper aim, you know, rifle aim on one location, say, here's what I'm going to do. What I decided to do was a shotgun approach mm-hmm. and I marketed to the entire lower 48 states. And then as deals started coming in, I would run them under financial analysis. I'd run them under demographic analysis, competitor analysis, and see which ones made sense. So it was almost like a pre-qualifying funnel. But once it made it to the next level, it'd have another set of criteria that it'd be measured against. And if it didn't make it, then we'd kick it out. If it did, it would go to the next level of, of underwriting to the point where we started finding you know, our assets. We were looking at close to 20 to 25 facilities a week. And we end up only closing on one or two every month or every two months. So really making sure that you have that deal flow. So like I said before, you can find those diamonds in the rough much faster, much sooner. You know, real estate is a numbers game. If you're only marketing to a thousand houses, the chance of you finding a slam dunk deal is going to be much smaller than say, if you're marketing to a hundred thousand houses and then it allows you to be choosy and picky. So in general, our underwriting criteria, we're looking for properties that are in growing markets uh, that are in the path of progress that we can buy at a reasonable cap rate or a reasonable return day one, but then, also have the ability to value add that facility to double or triple the value over the next, you know, three to five years. And if it meets all those criteria, that's when we decide to go out to the banks and then the banks, you know, they want to protect their investment as well. So they do an underwrite on it. And then if we're going to be raising capital from investors, then I also have to get a third party report, a third party feasibility study, if you will. So I pay a third party that's an expert in the field, expert in the location. Uh, You have to pay them up front so that the results are unbiased. And it's almost a way to kind of check yourself to make sure you're not wearing rosy colored glasses, right? I say easy to do. Right, right. So, I mean, we've all fallen, you know, fallen uh, prey to that where all of a sudden red flags start looking like pink flags, which start looking like white flags. But when you have a third party unbiased 
experts saying, hey, you know, here's some of the current concerns I'm seeing. Then that gives you the, a couple options. That gives you the option to walk away from the deal, gives you the option to put mitigation plans in place, uh, ways to defer liability to other parties or eliminate liability altogether, depending on creative deal structuring. So that's kind of how we approach. And to this day, we still market to the lower 48 states. Um, Alaska and Hawaii, a little bit too far for us. So we, we don't include those. Uh, and that allows us, like I said, to, to really fill the hopper full of opportunities, which then allows us to be hyper-selective on what we're looking for. And now let's take a moment for a quick commercial break. And we would like to thank our sponsor, Locum Story. Have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? Whether you are burned out, need a change of pace, or are looking to supplement your income, Locum Tenens might be a solution for you. If you're considering Locum Tenens either full-time or on the side, you probably have a question or two, or 20. Fortunately, Locum Story has the answers you need. It is packed with unbiased information and advice from physicians just like you. LocumStory.com has nothing to sell. It's simply a resource for information where you'll find all kinds of super handy tools that let you see Locum's trends for your specialty. Be able to compare it with different Locum's agencies and there's even a quiz to help decide if Locum's is right for you. The Locum Story blog also features content and perspectives from actual Locum's physicians who have firsthand Locum's experience. LocumStory.com is the perfect place to start if you want to learn more about Locum. So everyone, make sure to check out LocumStory.com. Do you, I have to imagine, you know, you, you can't necessarily afford a $30 million facility, you know, versus, I don't know, maybe a $1 million facility is too small, or maybe that's where you started out in. You know, did you have kind of a dollar amount in mind when you first started? versus what you look at now. Yeah. So when I first started, it was based off the amount of capital that I had available at my disposal and the amount of leverage that banks were offering me with my limited experience. As I started growing, then the deal sizes were based on my confidence in raising the capital. So right now I can raise roughly about a million dollars every two days when I'm actively raising capital for uh, deals. So that puts me, you know, I kind of top out at, you know, 15 to $20 million deals um, individually. Now, if we're looking at portfolios, that's a different story. Um, but you want to make sure that you can monetize all the leads that come into your funnel. So say, for example, if a property is too small, right now, anything that's under 35000 square feet or net rentable square feet, as we call it, uh, that's a little bit too small for me. So that doesn't mean it's not a good deal. It's just too small for me. There's plenty of investors that have signed up on my wholesale buyers list that would love to take something down, you know, under that size. So then we have the ability to wholesale those facilities to other investors, make a little fee off of it so that we're not wasting that lead. And those fees go right back into the marketing pot which allow us to continue our marketing efforts across the United States. Same thing on the other side. Uh, typically, 
you know, we won't buy facilities that are, you know, maybe over $5 million. If it's going to be above 5 million, we found that it makes more sense to build them ourselves. Um, so for example, we had a, a facility or uh, two facilities, I should say in North Carolina recently where the, the size was too big for us. So we ended up contacting a, a large private equity firm out of New York. They bought $300 million worth of storage over the last 18 months and it was right up their alley. So we ended up selling it to them and making an assignment fee off of that. That's great. Way to go. That's awesome. So if I'm brand new and I want to get into storage and I want to try it myself rather you than be part of a syndication, which there's great things about syndications. You don't have to do the work <laughs> that you're doing to um, get the facility and you can, you can be diversified among a bunch of different storage facilities. So there's a lot of great things about the syndications um, as a investor. Mm -hmm. But if I want to do it myself, where would you start knowing what you know now today? Yeah. So I, you know, first and foremost is to get educated. So there's a lot of great resources online. If you look at any of our social media, you can find me at the storage stud. We put out, you know, a lot of thought leadership, three to six different pieces of content, educational content per day across all of our platforms. Um, Bigger Pockets is another great resource. There's a lot of self-storage operators on there that gladly, um, you know, give up their time to answer questions and help uh, new investors get started. If you want something a little bit more structured, you know, I would, I'd recommend paying for a self-storage class. Uh, there's many options out there. Um, I, I, I took one when I was, I think in 2015 I, is when I took my first self-storage class. It wasn't too much. I think it was maybe $2,000 for a three-day class on, on the subject. Mm -hmm. And the reason I decided to do that is I found that I learned better in more structured environments, as well as I've, the ability to compress the learning timeline. Whereas if I were to go do it on my own and try to piecemeal things together, you know, you don't know what questions you need to be asking in the beginning. So it's better to go to something that's a little bit more structured um, that will take less time to get all that knowledge. And then from that point on, I ended up starting to pay other operators as kind of like a coach or a mentor. Uh, some of them were paid, some of them were unpaid. They're just asking if I can add value anyway. Um, this is another thing that I've done in every real estate asset that I've been involved in is, you know, offer up my time for free in exchange for those operators telling me why I'm doing the things that I'm doing for them and why it's important to the business. And that helps you learn with hands-on knowledge. It's almost like a residency, if you will. Yeah, no, I think that's incredibly smart and a really good tip. And uh, one, one that uh, gentleman that wanted to get into land, he worked under me and worked for free for a little while. And it was a mutually beneficial thing. And now he's, he's killing it. So um, I totally agree with that. Yeah. So that's, that's what I recommend to get started. You know, some other things you can also do is just start getting ingrained in the community. So reach out to self-storage brokers. You may not find a lot of opportunities from them. Um, you know, reach out to self-storage wholesalers. You'll probably find more opportunities on those sides that are a little bit more palpable as far as returns go. Join your local SSA, which is the Self-Storage Association. Every state has one. There's also a national SSA. And then the one that I really like as well is called ISS or Inside Self-Storage. They put on two to three trade shows per year. 
The one that they hold in Vegas is the largest self-storage trade show in the world. And they have these great tracks. It's the, I think the tickets are pretty cheap to go. It's like three or four days long. And they have multiple tracks that you can participate in as far as presentations go. Do you want to learn how to build self-storage? Do you want to learn how to manage self-storage? Do you want to learn how to raise capital from investors in self-storage? So I'd say get ingrained in the community and start reaching out to people that are doing what you want to do. You know, I I always make my contact information readily available. So if any of your listeners want to pick my brain or pick my ear, they can always, you know, shoot me a text, give me a call, shoot me an email, whatever's easiest. I love it. Well, thank you for that, Fernando. And um, let's, let's shift a little bit to talking about the current environment right now. You know, it's, it's a interesting uh, environment this year. We're recording this at the very end of June, 2022, and interest rates on 10-year treasuries have moved from, from uh, about one and a half percent up to three point something percent as of today. And so they've doubled. Mortgages have gone from 3% to 6%, depending upon who you're talking to. And I have to imagine the costs of, of leverage and self-storage have gone up as well. Are, are you seeing that? Or is that just more the mortgage market and treasuries. Yeah. You know, we're seeing a a combination of all those things, but it really kind of shifts your investment criteria as well as who you're getting leverage and cash from. So here's what I mean by that. For example, prior to the pandemic, when we had, you know, a lot of easy money, I was getting 80 to 85% leverage deals from banks. Now those same banks are offering me closer to 65 to 70%. So they're dropping the leverage and that's what I need to make the debt service, you know, ratios work. So now I'm just raising more equity instead of using debt in the place. However, those high leverage rates are still available. I just have to go to different operators. So now instead of going to a bank for an 80 or 85% leverage deal, I have to go to a private equity firm or or a debt firm and you're paying for that opportunity, right? You're instead of paying 4% interest rate, like you would to the banks. Now I'm paying eight to those, those high, high leverage operators um, or high leverage lenders. Now with the banks, their, their rates have gone up as well. So prior, you know, I was getting 4% rates. Now the bank's signing things at five and a quarter, five and a half, but the leverage is lower. But for me, they're all lever- levers that I can pull, right? So, you know, my investors are typically making 20 to 25% return on their money. So I can afford to pay an extra 4% in interest rate to get higher leverage because then I, I don't have to raise as much high return equity from my equity investors. So it just depends on, on the levers that you want to pull. What, what are the term lengths? You know, banks are typically only offering five-year balloons. So within five years, you have to refinance or sell the asset. That doesn't give me a lot of optionality. I don't know, you know, if I had a very muddy crystal ball, I would say that, you know, we're going to be in a high interest rate environment for some time. I think we're going to go up even more and then potentially come back down slightly, but not to the levels we saw pre-pandemic, right? Yeah. So how do I mitigate that? Well, one of the ways to mitigate that is getting longer term loans. You know, instead of getting a five-year balloon, maybe I'm getting a 10-year balloon or a 15 or a 20-year balloon from, say, a life insurance company being my lender, as opposed to going to a local bank that needs to keep their, you know, their, their positions pretty close, you know, as far as term goes. And so 
with those conditions being what they are, are you seeing, as you look at new deals, are prices coming down at all yet? Or is everyone just kind of feeling one another out at this point? You know, what is it like today in the market? Yeah, absolutely. And it, I know this is a, no one wants to hear the words, it depends, but it really depends on the size, how much capital you have available to you and what your investment, you know, periods are. So for example, at the high levels of the community, so, you know, the publicly traded REITs, the billion dollar companies, you're still seeing pretty compressed cap rates. I mean, prices are still through the roof just because self-storage is known to historically operate very well during recessions. Um, so a lot of smart money is just trying to place their money somewhere where they can hedge against inflation while still making a, a decent return or at least not making a loss. At the lower levels, we're seeing a lot of retrading going on. So, you know, as opposed to these giant REITs that are buying billion dollar portfolios or half a billion dollar portfolios, if you look at closer to like my range, which is the, you know, call it the after the publicly traded companies, there's the top 100 largest self-storage operators. I'm at the bottom of that list. You're seeing people in the five to $20 million range. They're starting to, at the closing table, ask the seller for a credit on price because their interest rates have gone up substantially since the beginning of underwriting that deal that it no longer is feasible or the bank literally just won't allow them to close at that price. So we saw a lot. I mean, I, I just sold a 10 property portfolio two weeks ago and my broker four days before closing called me extremely concerned saying that he saw 12 retrades that week because of the, inc- the 75 basis points increase in the Fed funds rate. And now we're, we're getting ready for another 75 basis point increase in July. So when the debt service can't handle or when you can't handle that level of debt service, you're going to have to either drop price or drop leverage. It's just a, a, a fact of the community. The unfortunate part about commercial real estate is that it's a large, slow-moving beast, and it has a significant lag time, typically you know, six to 18 months out compared to, say, the stock market. You know, The stock market reacts instantaneously to things happening. It's such a large market, they have so much volatility, whereas real estate is a reg, you know, relatively illiquid asset. So it takes a long, it takes a long time to move a giant cruise ship, right? As opposed to a little speeder boat. No, I I think great analogies. What, what I think about with this, this market overall, you, you tend to think of residential as a good corollary where, you know, you have a buyer's market, maybe a neutral market and you have a seller's market. And from my perspective, just looking at a few smaller size deals, not the deals that you're doing, that it seemed to me that a few months ago, it was very much a seller's market in self-storage. And I know in the residential space, for the first time, I've started to see price cuts in the last two years, where people are actually lowering their prices uh, on on, on the, the top end of it. Do you... Um, with your existing portfolio, are, do you feel any sort of pressure to sell any of, of the assets beyond like the portfolio you did? Or do you just feel so good as buy and hold is like, you know what, this is more recessionary, resistant? Um, how, how are you feeling about just being a self-storage investor and wanting to get top dollar versus what 
seems to be a softer environment moving from a seller's market to a neutral market? Yeah, that's a great question, Dave. So like, like you said, if you're looking at the $3 million and below purchase prices, you are starting to see some price cuts. I wouldn't call it a buyer's market just yet, but I think we're now getting a little bit closer to neutral territory. Whereas, like you said, prior, we were in a seller's market for sure, where to get anything accepted, you'd have to do a 15-day due diligence, 15-day close, cash potentially, wave appraisals. You know, We're not seeing any of that anymore. We are starting to see some price cuts. With that being said, you know my goal of getting into this asset class was to run a buy and hold portfolio, one where cash flow is prioritized over valuation. So I just sold the bottom half of my portfolio two and a half weeks ago. That was in process for four to six months. You know, to, to sell 10 facilities takes a long time on the due diligence side. And fortunately for us, we were selling to a 1031 buyer. So they had a timeline that they had to adhere to and retrading would risk that timeline and potentially trigger tax consequences. So we were pretty safe on that. But that's why I decided to sell off the bottom half. I looked at, okay, what is, I'm using poor in air quotes here, but what are the poor performers in my portfolio? Would I enthusiastically buy them again at what they're valued at today? If the answer is no, then I'm going to sell them. So I sold them off. These were typically all the smaller facilities I had, you know, 10 to 30,000 square foot facilities, the ones that were just too small for me nowadays, as far as economies of scale. The other part of my portfolio, I never had the intention to sell them off because the goal was cash flow. Goal was mitigating against, you know, recessionary environments. With that being said, the nice thing about self-storage, say, compared to multifamily is that we're in an inflationary environment. And typically when you're in an inflationary environment, you want the ability to raise rents lockstep with inflation. With multifamily, that's difficult because you're on year or longer contracts or leases. So in, in one year, you may have a substantial increase in inflation. And then when you go to try to recapture that on a one-year lease, when they go to resign, there's, there's substantial sticker shock. Whereas with self-storage, all of our leases are on 30-day terms. So every 30 days, say we're rip-roaring and we're, you know, we're facing 2 to 4% inflation per month, I can raise my rents lockstep with the inflation in smaller increments in shorter periods of time or time intervals so that it isn't a sticker shock to our investors or to our, our tenants or customers. With my existing portfolio right now, I'm, I'm just looking to you know, continue to acquire, uh, continue to collect passive cash flow. Um, and I think with this correction that's coming in the valuations of self-storage, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities for people like myself that have played it very conservatively, held a pretty he healthy cash position. I can't tell you how many deals I looked at where they looked good on paper with today's assumptions, but you know the deal was projected out over five years and they were using today's assumptions for their exit five years from now, interest rates, cap rate exits, et cetera. And I said, man, if you stress these deals, even 5% in the wrong direction, it no longer pencils out. So I think a lot of those guys that over leveraged were not conservative in their underwriting are going to face some really hard times when it comes to refinance, when that was their goal, you know, building on an 18 month construction loan, assuming they'd be able to refinance into a bridge loan. And then if, assuming they can refinance out of the bridge, you know, three, four year bridge loan into a 
non-recourse, longer-term secondary market loan, they're going to have a, a huge surprise and they're either going to be forced to bring a bunch of equity to the table to keep their property uh, because leverages have dropped from 85% down to 65% or they're going to be forced to sell. And I'm going to be waiting with cash in hand to buy some of these assets at below replacement cost. I, I have a whiff of opportunity here. I don't know if the smell is too strong yet, but yeah. <laughs> I get excited thinking about this stuff. You know, stuff goes down, it's time to buy. So exactly. Who knows where the bottom's going to be of, of anything, but you know, always better to buy a low than buy high if you can. So yeah. And it's just like the stock market. I, I look at investing in real estate from a dollar cost averaging perspective, right? You, timing the market is impossible, the stock market, but. If you put in the same amount, let's say you put in $1,000 a month, if values are high, then you buy less stock with that 1000 If values are low, you're buying more stock with that 1000 So the same principle applies in self-storage and real estate in general. I'm not trying to time the market. I always like to keep you know, roughly 30% of my net worth in liquid cash for opportunities. I don't like to spend it all in one place, but if I see opportunities to, you know, take one facility down here, maybe another one in a couple of months and another one in a couple of months as the market's going down in the long run, because I'm a, I'm long-term focused, you know, I'm, I'm 31 years old. So I, I plan on doing this for at least another 30 years, you know, God help me. Um, that's a long time. That's a lot of cycles to invest over at least another two or three cycles. Right. So yeah. time in the market is not the appropriate answer. It's, it's time in the market. Well, I think this has been such good uh, mentorship, Fernando, and so many good hints along the way. I'm sure we could keep chatting, but I want to respect your time and I got sure. stuff I got to do too. So um, <laughs> any closing thoughts, things you want to share that uh, we didn't cover that you think were real important that we didn't have a chance to? There's there's so much, but uh, what, I'd, what I'd like to extend to your, to your viewers and, and listeners is you know, if they have questions about self-storage, feel free to reach out to me personally. Um, you know, you can find us on our website, sssse.com. You can find us on social media. You can go to at the storage stud. Uh, we put out a bunch of educational content. One of the things that I, I like to do that not a lot of people take me up on is actually give out my cell phone number. So if you're not one of those people that like to use social media and you'd rather just give someone a call or shoot me a text, you can also reach me that way. My cell phone number is area code 630-408-8090. Shoot me a text or give me a call if you have any questions or if, if you need help getting pointed in the right direction of resources. Well, thank you so much, Fernando. Appreciate your time. And if people want to check out your uh, your company, maybe they're interested in, in investing in self-storage as, as perhaps this market gets a little weaker and they could buy low, where can they look up your company? Yeah. So easiest way is just to uh, go to our website, sssse.com. That stands for self-storage syndicated equities. All of our social media is attached to that as well. Uh, so just however you guys uh, prefer to reach out, we have a little contact page on the website as well, or you can just call me direct. All right, my friends. Well, there you go. Great advice and mentorship from Fernando today, covering so many different things. And I hope you get value out of his journey and see how he's progressing. And we'll have to check in with them a couple of years down the line to see what's changed then. 
for the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast. This is Dave Dennis. And remember, my friends, remember to slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Thank you, my friends, so much for listening to the last podcast. I am pleased to announce that I am now a completely independent financial advisor, where to the point now I can really integrate my financial planning practice with this podcast. If you might be looking for help, if you have found any of our information here interesting or relevant and you're looking for a second opinion, I'm making myself available for 30-minute strategy sessions. And if you want to arrange a time to meet with me to discuss your situation and see if we might be a good fit for one another, I'd like you to call our office and speak with Kyla. Our phone number is 612-284-2409. Again, that's 612-284-2409. And I look forward to helping you with your financial situation. And now for some lovely legal disclosures required by our lawyer friends. Investment advice is only offered in jurisdictions where Centurion Financial Strategies, LLC, Centurion is appropriately registered or exempt from registration. Our Form ADV Part 2 brochure can be obtained free of charge at advisorinfo.sec.gov by searching for our firm name or its unique CRD number, which is 316-454. This podcast is not a solicitation to provide advisory services in any jurisdiction in which we are not appropriately registered or excluded. The information, statements, and opinions contained in this podcast have been obtained from or are based on information obtained from sources which we believe to be reliable, but we do not warrant or guarantee the timeliness or accuracy of such information. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be construed as personalized investment, tax, or legal advice. Opinions expressed by any guest are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the firm's views. You should carefully consider your own financial circumstances and needs prior to making any investment in securities or purchasing any insurance products. As always, past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing in securities or really anything else involves the risk of loss. If by some chance in this particular podcast I mentioned insurance products, insurance products are backed by the financial strength and claims paying ability of the issuing insurance company. They may be subject to restrictions, limitations, and early withdrawal fees, which vary by issue. You should always consider the charges, risks, expenses, and investment objective of any insurance products before entering a contract. And that, my friends, wraps it up. Wish you all the best. Feel free to contact us with any info at www.daviddeniston.com. Thank you so much and have a good one. Bye-bye.